The Water Values Podcast, Session 19. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. Thanks for joining me. I hope everyone had a terrific and safe 4th of July filled with friends and family. I also want to thank all of you who've taken the time to rate and review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast directories. As of now, we're at 15 five stars, and we still have that one one-star rating out there. So if you haven't done so already, please consider leaving a review and a rating. That will really help others who want to learn more about water to find the podcast. Well, we've got a great show for you today. Deborah Coy is a Wall Street veteran who's now a partner in a consulting practice. She joins us and discusses a number of issues concerning water finance. She gets into how water utilities raise capital, the difficulties they encounter, the relationship of rates to raising that capital, and much more. And she does a fantastic job. And even if you've been in water finance for a while, I think you're really going to learn a thing or two. So before we launch into the program, please remember to listen all the way through to the end for the all-important disclaimer. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Deborah, good morning, and thanks so much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Greatly appreciate your time. Um, to start off, why don't you tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Sure. Good morning, Dave. Thanks for having me. I have been following the water sector for more years than I care to admit. I was an <laughs> equity research analyst. Uh, for a number of Wall Street firms for quite a few years, but fell into that by accident. I was a journalism major who went to work for a Wall Street firm, and when I started wanting to do research work, my boss then said, why don't you follow this environmental stuff? So that was really how I ended up doing it. I'm unusual in that I'm, I'm not an engineer, and I'm also not a trained uh, accountant or, or finance person, really. Like I said, I'm a journalist by background and orientation, which has been useful in terms of understanding the water industry. And it's been fun following water on Wall Street because it hasn't really been until fairly recently a, an area of broad interest or investability that my my salespeople on Wall Street used to say, why don't you follow a real industry, which just illustrates the fact that this is pretty fragmented. There's a lot of municipal ownership, and it hasn't really been an area where investors could play, but that's starting to change. So I'm uh, I'm seeing more people on Wall Street focus on water now, and I think that's a good thing for the industry. Great. Um in terms of the, the equities research that you were doing, what does that entail? Well, following the publicly traded stocks. So when you think about uh, the, you know, the different parts of Wall Street that impact the water industry, I was following the companies that have publicly traded equity, you know, the, the water stocks, if you will. That included investor-owned water utilities, uh, treatment, equipment, technology firms, uh, a lot of the companies that are involved in the water sector are not publicly traded. 
or that's a small piece of a large publicly traded company like GE. You know, GE is a big player in water, but nobody buys GE's stock because of their water business, which is less than, oh, I think less than one half of 1% of revenues. So I followed the companies that were a little more uh, focused on the water sector and were providing either utility services or other technology services. But really, the much larger piece of Wall Street that supports the water sector is the municipal bond area, because that's the primary way that in, that municipal water utilities are financed. So I was on the equity side, but that's a relatively small piece of the overall puzzle. Got it. And and you have you said you've left Wall Street. What what have you been doing since leaving Wall Street? Yeah, I I had been there a lot of years and was ready for a change. So about four years ago, started my own consulting practice. My partner is a former utility um, commissioner and regulatory consultant, and he's focusing on the electricity side. So I joined with a focus on the water side. My practice is a bit more strategic advisory work. I'm working with some investors, uh, XPV Capital, which is the largest, the largest uh, venture, uh, early stage private equity firm focused on water, is is one firm that I work with. Uh, my other clients are primarily companies that are involved in the water sector and either looking at their their acquisition strategy or their capital market strategy or kind of uh, looking at you know their growth strategy and been working with them from from that standpoint and a bit of financing too that I'm finding that more of the companies in the sector are trying to figure out how they can help bring additional finance into the municipal side of the market which has been has been money constrained in terms of infrastructure investment so working with a few people trying to figure out ways to cross over those barriers so it's been a fun practice. All right. Um, when we get into getting getting the equities or getting financing for the water sector, kind of what what do you see as the finance one on one for for the water sector? Well, it's a little different for the municipal side versus the investor owned side. So if we look at the utilities piece of the of the market, which is the water services that are provided. The investor-owned water utilities have a very well-established uh, capital structure where they're roughly half debt and half equity. They have public utility commissions that regulate what is the allowed return on the equity portion, and then they access the, the debt markets like any other corporation in America, to uh, to provide the capital to invest in their systems. Water is a pretty capital-intensive business, more so than electricity or gas, and it's because of the it's because of the the infrastructure assets that are involved are just more expensive to replace. You know, we always say you can't wheel water across power lines, and uh, water's expensive to move, so the transportation network is expensive, the treatment requirements 
are significant and the 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 life of the assets tends to be long so it's a it's a pretty capital intensive business and the investor owned water utilities have set up with their regulators a system to address that the municipal side of the market which is 85% of us population is served by a municipal utility rather than an investor owned utility they're a little bit more um, kind of catches catch can in terms of what their local situation is the large the large ones that are uh, that are uh, regulated by or at least um, assessed I should say not regulated but assessed by the rating agencies and have a bond rating and have uh, good financial conditions they don't have any trouble going into the municipal bond markets and raising capital in in the US relative to every other country in the world we do have a subsidized municipal debt construct whereby it's much cheaper um, although this is not as true as it used to be it's not quite as big of a difference as as it was given some of the changes in the bond market but it's still a bit cheaper to raise municipal debt than private debt and that's what large water utilities are able to do although some cities are in more financial trouble than others Detroit being the ultimate example of a city that runs up to a financial wall and can no longer raise capital but the more the more consistent issue is that smaller to medium-sized cities that don't have uh, a bond rating or don't have the size of projects and don't have the access to the bond markets as consistently those tend to be the municipalities that are struggling a bit more to try and find the capital for their water systems and they they may be trying to operate on a cash basis in other words as much as you bring in in revenues is how much you can spend or they may be able to get some smaller uh, bonds issued but those aren't rated so they're more expensive because they're viewed as higher risk so it's a little more difficult for some of the municipalities than it historically has been for the investor owned water utilities depends on what city you're in well you've said a lot there uh, let's unpack it a little bit, and we'll talk about the IOUs first. You said they were a fairly small portion of the overall market, and so how do they raise their capital through stock issuances, debt issuances? You know, what are the, what are they doing to um, raise their capital? That's right. They, as I said, it is a relatively small proportion. There are nine publicly traded investor-owned utilities. And as I said earlier, the the capital structure is roughly 50% equity and 50% debt. And so, yes, they will go out into the stock market and issue equity through stock offerings to raise equity capital. Or they'll go into the debt markets and raise debt, either bank debt or uh, for corporate bonds or the debt side so they're they're really like any other corporation that's publicly traded you know they have some combination of debt and equity and they go to the stock market they go to the debt markets and they raise the capital that they need the difference for utilities versus 
say Amazon is that you know they do have they do have a pretty high capital requirement and they do have a regulatory construct where they have to get approval from their utility regulator because they're a natural monopoly they are regulated and they do have to get approval to issue debt and to issue equity and they have to stay within a specified capital structure but they have not had any trouble doing that you know these investor owned utilities some of them have been around for a hundred years some of them have been on you know traded on the stock markets for 70 or 80 years and if you look at the performance of them over time you know it's it's a very stable industry investors particularly retail investors like water utility stocks um, they're safe they pay a dividend and when they go out to raise capital either on the debt side or the equity side they don't have any trouble it's a it's a pretty popular uh, area of investment and because it's a relatively small group there's only nine stocks that are out there raising capital periodically most of those issuances are pretty pretty popular and um, pretty quickly taken up by investors so there you know we've always said despite the capital intensity of the industry that the, for the investor owns the access to capital is very good. Can you talk a little about the relationship between utilities and regulators and how that impacts the cost of capital? Because just from my background, yeah. you noted that there are only nine publicly traded water utilities, and that just highlights some of the rate cases um, I've been involved with, uh, where very small water and wastewater utilities, you know, we've had to use a proxy group that consists of a lot of these publicly traded, you know, entities just to to get into the cost of capital for those smaller utilities. So if you could just talk about the regulatory relationship between the utilities and the regulatory commissions, that'd be great. Sure. And and it's worth noting as you mentioned there that there's nine investor owned utilities, but there are a lot of other smaller privately owned utilities. There's a few of of decent size that are owned by private equity firms or other private investors. They're not traded, but they're privately owned. And then there's hundreds of tiny little investor-owned water utilities that are owned by property developers or homeowner associations that may only have 50 or 100 customers and they also have to access capital, and it's more difficult for them. As, as you noted, the, the regulator is, is the one that sets the allowed return on equity, on the, on the equity portion of the, of the balance sheet, which we said is about half of the total capital structure. So if you... If you have a a company that's you know worth a hundred million, your fifty fifty million equity and fifty million debt, the regulator will set the allowed return on equity, basically the 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 profit that can be earned. And it's related to interest rates and it's related to stock market risks, and there's all this whole complicated uh, formula that they do. 
but they all come out to be about the same. The, the current returns um, on equity that we're seeing are in the 95 to 10% range right now. You know, some a little bit higher than that or an occasional one a little bit lower, but we're on average probably right slightly under 10% return on equity right now. On the debt side, it's driven by interest rates. The commissions don't set the interest rates. The market sets the interest rate. And the cost of debt, you know, utilities are expected to be prudent. They're expected to try to raise debt at as reasonable a cost as they can. And then the interest cost is simply a pass-through to the to the rate payer. So the combined cost of capital, given where interest rates are, given where return on equity is, Probably the combined cost of capital for an investor-owned utility right now is somewhere in the 6% range, I would estimate. I'd have to run some math to get a more precise number, but somewhere between 5 and 7% is probably about where they are running currently, uh, depending on how much low-cost loans they can get. And that is a bit higher than what we're seeing, of course, if you're if you're on the municipal side and you're entirely subsidized municipal bond financed, your average interest rate may be closer to four percent, depending on depending on your bond rating, depending on what you what you could go to market for. Some municipalities are paying higher rates of interest because they're viewed as higher risk. You know, New York City, which is a AAA bond-rated uh, water utility, you know, they're probably still raising debt for under a little under 4%. Hmm, interesting. Um, could you talk about the relationship of rates with, with the financing issues? Yes, it's absolutely uh, the bottom line for everybody because at the end of the day, this is something I think that that consumers aren't used to thinking about and municipalities are wrapping their heads around too. I mean, everybody understands that your costs are going to flow through to your rates. It's a very direct relationship for the investor-owned utilities whereby we have this combined cost of capital, as we said. We have the operating costs and there then becomes a set revenue requirement to cover the cost of operations and capital, and that's what you charge the rate payer. So rates are a direct flow-through from those combined costs, including the cost of money. For municipalities, it's not always such a clear relationship. Um, they have a political overlay. They may have pushback on rate increases. They may try to figure out ways to cross-subsidize, and they're getting subsidized capital already. And they may also, if it's politically unpalatable to raise rates, they may be looking around for other sources of, of subsidy, whether it's uh, some state grants. There's not many of those left anymore or possibly even subsidizing from someplace else in the municipality. Given municipal budgets, that's also getting harder to do. So we are seeing, I think this is very healthy for the industry, we are seeing municipalities 
becoming more focused on charging rates that cover the full cost of service, including the cost of debt, including the cost of operations, including the cost of replacement capital. So this whole concept of charging rates that that impute the full cost of service is one that the industry has been talking about for a while and that I'm finally starting to see taking hold. You know, I don't think that every city out there is charging full cost of service, but we're moving in that direction, and I think that's very healthy for the industry because, obviously, if rates cover the cost of capital, it's easier to raise capital uh, from whatever source, and so that's a trend that I think will help draw investment that's needed into the sector. Well, that's good to hear. Can What do you think is driving that? What Why is... Why is kind of full cost water starting to creep more into uh, into the industry? I think because of exactly the the reason that they need to attract capital. You know, there's everybody talks about the underinvestment in infrastructure. Everybody who's in the infrastructure industry, anyway, talks about the underinvestment in infrastructure that we've seen. The need to invest in infrastructure to keep America competitive. And certainly water and wastewater on the municipal side is an area where we've seen underinvestment in infrastructure. The investor-owned utilities, because they have this system set up that gives them a return on that investment, you know, they've kept up because they're supported by their commissions and their rate structures to do that. A lot of municipalities have deferred capital spending, and their pipes are starting to fall apart, their treatment plants are old, they're having sewer overflow runoffs that are causing political backlash. The Here in Washington, there was the, the big water pipe that burst on a main street and cars floated away and they had to be rescued by <laughs> helicopter and, you know, all kinds of drama that comes into the news related to failure of water infrastructure, and so they start looking around and saying, what are we going to do about this? And the ability to get, you know, they, they spent a lot of time, municipalities, I work in Washington and I have always uh, watched the political process, and the municipal groups that work here have spent an awful lot of time going up to Capitol Hill saying, we need more money to fix our failing infrastructure. We need more grants. We need more low-cost loans. And you know, given the overall budgetary environment that Congress is dealing with, the money is just not available. So over the last, I would say, two or three years, um, I think it's begun to sink in in earnest that – we're not going to be able to get more subsidized bailouts, and you're going to have to figure out how to do it on your own. And to attract the capital to do that, you have to charge the rates that cover the cost of capital. You know what we've said to you know we, being some of my consultant friends, that we've said to municipalities that if you have a rate structure that is fully covering your costs, it becomes easy to raise capital. There's lots of infrastructure funds, pension funds, global infrastructure funds that would love to put money into the water sector, but you have to have a cash flow structure that pays back the cost of that capital in addition to the other operating costs. 
And so that's why I think municipalities are just paying a lot more attention attention to rate structures and sustainable, you know, long-term management plans than they had to before. So it's it's a gradual process. Nothing moves quickly in the water sector, but I think we're <laughs> moving in that direction. I, I, I tend to agree with you. And yeah. uh, in, in terms of the uh, the investor owns or the and the smaller utilities, I, I'm seeing over the past you know ten years or so, or maybe even fifteen, um, a lot more consolidation as these smaller utilities that that have limited access to capital. They're getting yeah. gobbled up by a lot of the the larger investor owns, like you know, like right. American and Aqua have been um, aggressive. I know, and yeah, and, and and so. Could you talk a little about, you know, how consolidation is uh, impacting the industry? Yeah, it's a very good point. You know, it's often cited that there's 55,000 water utilities in the U.S. It's a ridiculously huge number. Of course, 40,000 of those are extremely small, but it is a fragmented industry, and that's hugely inefficient. You know, some of us who've watched it for a while say, we need Maggie Thatcher, because in the UK in the 1980s, Margaret Thatcher just went in and mandated first regionalization of the, of the water utility sector to drive that consolidation, to drive efficiency. And then, of course, in 1989, they privatized those regional facilities I don't see that we're in independent, independently-minded America ever going to come around to Maggie Thatcher's point of view. But, but that idea that all these little systems are hugely inefficient is, is something that, that everyone in the industry keeps trying to figure out how to resolve. And the public utility commissions have been supportive of the larger investor-owned utilities buying some of the smaller troubled systems that haven't met their upgrade capital needs. And that process has been going on for some time. I think will continue to go on. It's a little tougher for the small municipal systems because then it involves privatization and that may be, even in a small town, politically controversial. So that process of consolidation is happening a little more slowly versus the smaller privately held ones are often being acquired, as you said. I think that's a great perspective that you've offered. Uh, do you have an opinion on rate freezes? Uh, yes, I have a very strong opinion about that. <laughs> I think they're a terrible idea. It, yeah. we, we've seen some of that. Uh, you can look around. I mean, rate, water rates vary all over the place, and water rate you know, structures and policies vary all over the place around the country. Investor-owned utilities don't put in place rate freezes unless there's some sort of a temporary political mandate uh, maybe for a year or two after an acquisition is done or something like that. But we have seen certainly municipal utilities that haven't raised rates for five years or ten years. They're becoming fewer and fewer. But 
rate freezes can be politically attractive. You know, the, the mayor says, you know, we've frozen water rates and your water rates are not going to go up. And nobody's explaining to the ratepayers that, meanwhile, under their feet, things are continuing to deteriorate. And, oh, by the way, replacing that pipe is only getting more expensive every year. So I think they've, you know, that sort of thinking has been very damaging to the industry. I'm encouraged that I'm seeing less of it, but... I think it's just a matter of education. You know, it's a matter of educating the local political officials and then in turn the ratepayers about what the real cost is to deliver this service. And I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that uh, rate freezes won't come up as a topic one of these days, but we're probably not quite there. I'm I'm so glad you said that because I I was going to say I have a strong opinion on that as well. And and one of the things that I – I think would behoove a lot of our political leaders in the, especially in the municipal systems is if they implemented very small rate increases every year and got their constituency essentially conditioned to the rate increase, um, it's, it's going to be a non-issue because you know, a, 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 a 1% rate increase every year or less than a percent rate increase every year uh, is not going to, generate the political outcry that maybe a 10% or a 15% rate increase is going to generate. So I think if you get folks conditioned to, hey, you know, the pay, the price of bread goes up every year, the price of, uh, you know, the CPI goes up every year. I know the CPI uh, may not accurately reflect the costs that go into water utilities, but uh, I think if you condition the, the, the rate payers that, hey, the, the cost of service goes up every year. Uh, That's right. You know, I th- We're I think- used to doing it for our phone bills, right, or our cable bills or our electric bills, and it's always been a mystery to me why water is so politically sacrosanct that people are afraid to raise rates. You know, water is you know, a public right and, and all of that, but you're absolutely right, and it is one thing that the investor-owns have figured out together with their with their commissioners in a lot of states now, they have these so-called distribution infrastructure surcharges whereby they put a little surcharge on the bill every quarter or every year to pay for the cost of you know, ongoing fixing the pipes. And it has the impact of those smaller incremental rate increases so that you're not doing it used to be for the investor-owned utilities. You know, they went in for a rate case every three years. And then there'd be, you know, an approved rate increase, and it'd be a big jump up, and then it would be flat for the next three years, and a big jump up, and and that's always more difficult. So they're they are moving toward the system of of smaller, more frequent rate increases, which is good for cash flow and good for educating the consumers. Municipalities are starting to think that way. We're seeing some that are that are very forward-thinking. D.C. Water is one where the general manager, a guy by the name of George Hawkins, has been very vocal in the local press saying, here's how much it costs to fix all of our water issues, and here's what rate increases are going to have to be. And he had some pushback initially, but has now had success in putting through rate increases. So I think, I think that direction is where we have to go, and we're starting to go there 
we're probably not at the point yet where we can get away with 1% rate increases. We're probably still in a bit of a catch-up period where annual rate increases need to be at inflation or a little bit above inflation uh, to get to get a lot of cities caught up to where they need to be. And then there's no reason why you wouldn't just see normal CPI type increases, but the you know, the political uproar has been around these cities that didn't raise rates for 10 years, and then they come in with a 30 or 40% rate increase, and everybody thinks the world has ended. Of course, <laughs> that 30 or 40% rate increase may only put their bill from you know, $30 a month to $40 a month or $50 a month. So it's still, for most households, relative to other costs, it's still quite affordable. There is a lot of discussion about the lower-income households but we're starting to see rate structures that can address that as well, just like we've seen in the electric industry where you have some lifeline, you know, level of of water service, you know, supporting low-income households. And, you know, the guys that are filling their pools and watering their fancy lawns can generally afford to pay substantially more. Sure. You know, I, I've not been in a jurisdiction yet where the lifeline rates uh, for water are available, but I, I'm a proponent of that. That concept. They're starting. They're starting. I, we're starting. We're starting to see some of that. Uh, the some of the investor-owned utilities in California, for instance, have have those kinds of rate structures uh, for for the, some of their some of their service territories. So we're beginning to see some of that. But you're right. We need to see more. Well, Deborah, you have done an absolutely fantastic job educating us on water finance issues. Uh, for those listeners who'd like to find out more about you, where can they go to do that? I kind of uh, keep my business directly, you know, with my with my clients. So I don't have a website like a lot of people, but I I do have a Twitter feed. Uh, it's Coy underscore Deborah, and love to connect with people about water issues on Twitter. It's fun. And I do write a column for Global Water Intelligence, and I'm out and about at various conferences. But in terms of direct connection, Twitter is probably the best place. Terrific. Well, and, and you're very active on Twitter. I, that's, that's how I found you and uh, was very impressed by uh, your insights. So I encourage everyone to follow Deborah on Twitter. So, uh, again, thank you very much for your time, Deborah. You've been fantastic, and we'll talk to you soon. You bet. Well, that was my interview with Deborah Coy. She clearly knows water utility finance, and she described the issues very clearly. So here are my takeaways from the interview. The biggest one is that more and more municipal utilities are starting to charge the full cost of service for water. Now, that's hugely important on a public education level, on a financing level, and on an infrastructure level. I've said this throughout the podcast series that public education about water issues needs to improve and when municipal utilities raise rates and come closer to charging the full cost of service, they'll have to do a better and better job communicating why a rate increase is needed. And that outreach will help educate more people about why water rates need to rise. On the financing level, charging more for water service will ultimately help bolster the municipal utilities' bond ratings, which will then lead to a lower cost for financing and will keep the future rate increases as low as possible. Then on the infrastructure level, the additional funds will help replace aging infrastructure, which in turn should reduce non-revenue water and, again, will help keep future rate increases as low as possible because the utility 
uh, will gain kind of an extra source of supply from that non-revenue water that it is uh, it is converting into uh, revenue-based water. My next takeaway is related to the first takeaway, and that is that there is no federal bailout coming to rescue water utilities with infrastructure problems. That means the sooner that water utilities face up to their capital needs and start raising rates, the better off they're going to be in the long run. It will take a lot of political will to accomplish that, and this goes hand-in-hand with a blog piece that I wrote about why local leadership is the real key to our nation's water infrastructure problems. So swing by thewatervalues.com to check out that blog piece. My final takeaway involves the privatization of water utilities in the UK in the 1980s during Margaret Thatcher's uh, reign as prime minister. Uh, P3 agreements seem to swing in and out of favor, and I'm very interested to see, given that 85% of water customers are served by municipally owned utilities, whether P3 agreements will gain a better footing. And if you recall back in session 18 of the Water Values podcast, Phil Wilson and I discussed uh, that the water sector really hasn't seen a lot of P3 agreements, and those that are out there, there's there's had a mixed bag of uh, successes. So I'm really interested to see how P3 agreements take shape over the coming years. Um, well, you can check out the show notes for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 19. And please don't be bashful in letting me know what interested you about the interview by leaving a comment on the show notes or by emailing me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet at me at DTM1993. And don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast and to sign up for the Water Values newsletter, which can be done at thewatervalues.com. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting on it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with us. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.